when I think about song, especially right now, I'm struck with both things, how, how excellent and how, um, how virtuosic and how extraordinary song can be, and then also how deeply ordinary and incredibly human it is. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and the skies proclaim his handiwork. This is Good Heavens, a podcast about the cosmos and the Christian faith. What would it sound like if the stars could sing? What kind of harmony would usher forth from the diamond-studded canopy above us? Jesus said that if our praise fell silent, the rocks would cry out in hallelujahs. What would celestial hallelujahs sound like? Can we even imagine the kind of earth-shattering refrains stars might produce? How beautiful, how glorious, how terrifying. Yet perhaps it would be something also entirely recognizable to us, something that might condescend to our creatureliness and frail humanity. When the angels announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, Luke records that the light-bearing heavenly host burst forth into song, and the shepherds became sore afraid, yet ran with great haste to see the bright and morning star wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The creator of the heavens and earth, the one who made the stars by the breath of his mouth, lies helplessly enfolded upon a bed of common straw as an infant. The omnipotent voice which commands the sun and other stars humbly took the gurgling and cooing sounds of a newborn babe as his own. How best are we to understand the stars? Are they just massive orbs of superheated gas and plasma, or is there more to them? For centuries, stars have been a kind of companion to mankind, helping us navigate the darkness, helping us to know what time of year it is, helping us to know when to plant and when to harvest. In a humble little paperback book written in the early 1960s, authors Martha Evans Martin and Donald Howard Menzel suggest, quote, one has a fine sense of companionship with the stars when he has secured this kind of acquaintance with them. When on looking out of the window at any hour of the night, he can see a familiar face twinkling at him, as if in friendly recognition of the fact that he must know it is due at that hour and is expecting to see it. Or when, on a cold midnight in late February, before the trees and birds have announced the springtime, He sees a bright, bluish, scintillating point just pushing up over the eastern horizon and knows that Vega has come to grace the skies again and that spring will surely come with her. Such a feeling for the stars is not induced by exciting wonder at the expanse and mystery of the heavens or by burdening and oppressing the mind with the vastness that seems beyond all compassing in thought, but by showing how the stars, 
Like the flowers and the trees, are but parts of the visible beauty of nature, which have their share in making the perfect whole. End quote. Despite our present knowledge of the stars as being enormous balls of nuclear fire, there remains a quiet and comforting familiarity about them. The multitudinous celestial hosts, despite their ferocity, enormity, and inexplicable power, nevertheless seem to condescend to us and accommodate our creaturely existence here in our comparatively tiny neighborhoods. What best explains this apparent paradox? Theologian, scientist, and Christian author Dr. Alistair McGrath notes that, quote, rightly perceived, nature points beyond itself. For some, nature is an end in itself, demanding to be explained and then exploited. Yet the doctrine of creation introduces a new dimension to nature as a means by which the glory and radiance of God can be reflected towards humanity, already accommodated to its ability to discern it. End quote. The stars point us to Christ, their creator. The stars are but servants and messengers, accommodating us, declaring God's glory to us. Like the angels, they bear witness of their creator, of God's invisible attributes. Scripture engages the best of our imagination, poetically exhorting us to consider that the stars can and do sing. As the 148th Psalm declares, quote, Praise him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all stars of light. Praise Him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. End quote. And as God asks Job, quote, Where were you when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? End quote. On this special Christmas edition of Good Heavens, by request of some of our longtime listeners, we speak once more with musicologist Dr. Christina George about the wonders of music and song and try to imagine, as the ancients did, the glory of God in creation and the glory of God in the face of Christ, coming to us as Emmanuel, God with us. What would it have been like to have sung a hymn with the bright and morning star the night after the Last Supper? What did the voice which brought the stars into being itself sound like? In one sense, it must have been inexplicably extraordinary. Yet, in another sense, it was likely something remarkably ordinary as well. As we began our conversation, Christie described music and song as having both these extraordinary and ordinary qualities to them, a paradoxical and wondrous truth that reminds us of Christ himself. Christina George You know, we can think about music sort of uh, universally and then also song as a particular within that. And it's a really neat thing to think about song during this season because we have um, 
the way that sung music changes according to the church calendar. We have carolers. In fact, just last night, had a wonderful knock on our front door. That's one of these things you learn when you move to Sterling is at any time of day or night, someone might come to your door. And at first I thought it was a stranger. <laughs> and um, the first time they told me that they were Mormons and I laughed so hard because I got to the door and they were my students both times. And it's just a wonderful um, close community. You know, everyone lives a few blocks away from each other, but they had prepared some carols and it was four. It was hilarious. It was four tenors. And uh, if you listen to this, you know who you are. And it was just wonderful. And they, they did a great job. And um, one of their, I, I presume, although this is presumptuous, one of their mothers made us a pumpkin cake that we accidentally ate almost the entire thing of. So thank you to that mother. And I'd like the recipe. I live on 4th and Main. <laughs> but um, all of that to say, it was such a reminder of the hospitality that song can bring. And that, I think, is not the same as, but very akin to what you describe in terms of the um, the intercessory capacity of song. And it's really interesting, actually, because I, I have two thoughts that, that are parallel, and they, I promise they intersect eventually. But on the one hand, I think that we think of song as being intercessory, uh, or it can be. It can, you know, one person singing can sort of bless another who hears it because of the skill but that is a mm -hmm. that is a i think quite a modern thought um because of the way in which music has become so specialized and mm. it's not that that is a bad thing i think that with an increase especially in you know circles of, of learning and performance um, an increase in specialization has had incredibly beautiful results in terms of the level of excellence that is achieved. And as, you know, instruments mm -hmm. have become more capable and, and training is, is really specific, the level of music being sung and performed uh, in today's day and age is, is really phenomenal. And it's simply true that someone can play something more virtuosic on a trumpet today than 200 mm. years ago. Um, you know, because valves really help with accuracy. And so I think that with the voice, it's interesting because it's an instrument that remains unchanged. It's not been affected by the Industrial Revolution or, um, mm. you know, or it's not been mechanized in any way. But we continue mm. to learn so much about how the voice works. And um, there are, I would certainly consider myself to be a singer who sings with others and not alone. <laughs> um but I think that, that the specialization, all to say, is usually um, yielding a really excellent thing, but it sometimes can really close people off from the experience of music making. Uh, you know, I might hear from students all of the time, uh, I'm not a music major, so that doesn't apply to me. And it's become something mm. where I can do this musicking thing if I am becoming specialized in it. But I think what the mm. carolers reminded me of last night and what this season reminds me of and um, a lot of the the language about how song is present in, in the universe and in the cosmos, I think that reminds me that it's ancient and that is deeply human um, but and heavenly. <laughs> it really taps into both, which we can talk about. But it's something that doesn't require specialization and it's something that... I think as church music has changed a lot, um, you know, we have kind of followed trend when it, it was a corporate thing in a really, really simple way for a really long time. I think particularly of mm. um, a number of times I have gone and 
um, stayed for a few days in an abbey or a monastery and just joined them in their in their prayer service as they sing the hours. And there was this one service in particular. I was the second or third day I was there and it was a really quiet three days. I mean, I didn't speak to anybody. I didn't join them in any of the meals. I, I was, um, I was, engaging in prayer and I, I was seeking God and then also reading a bunch of C.S. Lewis's letters to children so it was great <laughs> but um <laughs> but I I woke up for the early morning service and it was maybe 5 30 or something like that and I had already seen the other people you know there were maybe I don't know eight to ten other people who were visiting um just for a sort of miniature pilgrimage you know and so I rem- they were looking familiar by this point but none of us knew each other but we met in the prayer service and we all sat far apart from each other and we waited for about five minutes and the lights were low you know and again it's 6 a.m and the monks came out and they sat at the very front and they opened their prayer books and they started to sing and we had ours and we were following along and I was really struck by how incredibly ordinary it was and I wasn't used to seeing people sing that early in the morning, as funny as that sounds. You know, it's something, especially as a musician, by the time the music exits your body, there's been some measure of preparation. (laughs) Um, And this was just an act of prayer and an act of Mm. regular participation. And of course, in that context, it's not meant to be performance in the same way, but it is still an an act that you engage in with your, with your whole body um, at every single point in the day. So it's sort of a lot of words to say when I think about song, especially right now, I'm struck with both things, how, how excellent and how, um, how virtuosic and how extraordinary song can be, and then also how deeply ordinary and incredibly human it is. And I think the there's a wider gap now between speaking and singing than there even used to be. We have to consciously remember that the psalms were sung, you know. Um, and mm. that's that's definitely a shift that has taken, I think, place in our culture because of so many reasons, but in the last couple of hundred years. and um, But it makes it more exciting even to think about its effect upon us now and and really makes those carolers really special so and it, it it's it, as i'm listening to you speak i i think it brings to mind a couple of things one of them that we'll touch on here in a minute um but the first thing it brings to mind uh the way in which you've articulated the the difference between the excellent virtuoso performance oriented you know many people will go see the nutcracker or Handel's Messiah, where you you hear the singers or you you listen to the orchestra, um, certainly performance oriented, very moving. Um, but then there's that ordinariness of singing in the shower, singing in the car, singing badly in church, if you're <laughs> <laughs> singing singing off key with your neighbor. Um, but but that ordinariness of it, that participatory ordinariness of it, um, for for a lot of us uh, could be discouraging. That I'm not like that mm. operatic singer or I'm not Mariah Carey or, you know, whatever. <laughs> but I, I see, you know, the, the, the funny image, the, 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 the sort of the cultural shtick comes to mind of, of American Idol, yes. where you see mm-hmm. the ordinary and the extraordinary coming together, uh, kind of in a pop culture way. But, but you see the importance of song and that everybody wants to attain uh, a, a level of satisfaction through singing. Um, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, virtuoso. Mm-hmm. It, it's it, as you say, it's very ordinary. But it reminds me of, really, I think you've articulated quite well, Kirsty, the the incarnation 
uh, of Jesus being, you know, super, you know, divine and, and, and also completely ordinary. Um, I think of the, uh, the, the passage in Matthew, uh, Matthew 26, where they just finish the supper and they sing a hymn mm-hmm. and they, they, they go out on the Mount of Olives. Now that's one of them. It's a very short line. It's like Jesus wept, you know, yeah. they, sung, <laughs> they, after, sung a hymn. Yeah. <laughs> they sung a hymn, right? Uh, and he created the stars also. Yes. You know, those things. <laughs> <laughs> just an aside, but you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah. I'm singing a, singing a song with the God of the universe. I'm hearing a voice that in some way was mm. was responsible f- for the creation of the universe. I mean, I, I don't think I could open my mouth. <laughs> I would be I would be stunned. I would like, what did that sound like? What was that like? You know, but it was it was probably, as you say, I would bet that the way you've described that the, the monastic the, the brethren coming out mm-hmm. and that the ordinariness of this i i would imagine that we would be struck by the ordinariness of it yeah uh, as you say because there is a profoundness to to what is ordinary that we in that ordinary sense we see a beauty that is often overlooked because we're so performance focused mm-hmm. um we often um Miss that. I was reading Malcolm Geith, thanks to you, uh, in, in preparation for our talk. And uh, he has a uh, – I, I sent it to you. that He has a new book out, which is basically a smaller argument of um, his bigger book, Faith, Hope, and Poetry. Mm-hmm. But he outlines a poem, and your thoughts um, bring this one to mind. It's a poem called Kenosis, and that's from the Greek word in Philippians 2 mm-hmm. of Jesus emptying himself. And uh, the poem – talks about Jesus as an infant, and then Malcolm Geith goes on to describe that, that infans is Latin for without speech. Mm-hmm. And so here's the Word of God enfleshed in human form, uh, the Word made flesh, unable to utter words, which is just profoundly remarkable to me. Um, the the idea that God comes to us incarnately. But this gets us to... Uh, a couple of songs that I wanted to talk about, uh, the text and, and antiphons, which we want to get into a little bit. Um, but you sent me some, we talked about Psalm 118, and uh, one of the songs we're going to talk about comes from a text in in the Psalm 118. It's uh, verses 22 and 23. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And that is a, I want you to go in to talk to our listeners a little bit about um, what what are the antiphons in, in, in relation to, before we get, you know, too specific into the text, what are these, some people, I, I don't, I don't know if all of my audience would be familiar with this, but what, what are these antiphons? What is this um, phenomenon that, uh, that a lot of traditions celebrate uh, this season? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, these are beautiful. Um, and I confess, I came across them later, too, and I sort of had that moment when I first uh, read and heard them and thought, oh, where, where have I been my whole life? <laughs> where have these been my <laughs> whole <too>. life? <laughs> right, um, and right. I certainly came to a, a liturgical context in my own in my own church life later, And um, but for many of the reasons we've mentioned with regard to song and such have have really really been been blessed by how it has enriched my understanding of how to move through the church calendar and anticipate um moments like this i mean the whole you know year has so many specific rhythms that are are traversed together in a community of of believers but these antiphons specifically 
are essentially um, prayers for Advent. And they come to us really from, from early centuries. And um, they're sung, uh, said and sung antiphonally um, at Vespers, at an evening service. And each one of them, there are seven in total, and each one of them addresses God addresses Christ by uh, a name of his, many from Isaiah and some, there's some connection to Matthew, uh, certainly. And um, so we have um, O Sapientia, O Wisdom, O Adonai, uh, my Latin is not extraordinary, but O Radix, <laughs> O Clavis, O Key, o key of David, um, O Oriens, which we'll talk about a little bit more today, I think. And then um, it ends with O King of the Nations and o, M- o, o Emmanuel, from which our text for O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, draws. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, I have something really neat to tell you from just this past Sunday. It's amazing how um, I really think God lines some of these things up because there's just, well, other than the fact that we're in Advent, it feels amazing that these things line up. <laughs> um, but all of this to say, um, they are the the days on which these different antiphons fall in the evening service leading up to Christmas are this season that we're in right now from December 17th or so to the 23rd. And then, you know, Christmas Eve is this big turning point. And, um, and so for, for today's, we have this, um, this name, O Orions, or, you know, there's a few ways to translate this, but O, O day spring, O morning star. And, um, of course, Morning Star itself has a different sort of connotation depending on the context in which you read it. So, mm-hmm. you know, technically it might be the first planet that you see uh, near sunrise, you know, at dawn. Um, and sometimes it is used, it was certainly in scripture, we, you know, talk about um, the praise uh, that comes from the morning stars. And I've actually been on this kick in the last few days, knowing we were getting to talk, thinking about a few of my favorite contexts in in storybooks, essentially all children's stories, where stars are singing, because that mm. that connection is is completely uh, inextricable in in a lot of places, and so I'm excited to share some of those with you. But all that to say, this um, this language of the morning star, O Dayspring, referring to um, our Savior as this first hope after the the night of darkness. And um, I'll read, let's see here, I'll read here the, um, oops, I'm on the wrong ones, that's tomorrow's. All right, so um, I'll, I'll skip the Latin, it's great, but you know, here's the English. <laughs> o day spring, splendor of light eternal and sun of righteousness, come and enlighten those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death. These antiphons are actually, what you just read, are things that are actually sung and uh, in plain chant. Correct. Uh, whether it be a choir or something like that. And so the words that you just read would be, would, would be sung. And uh, just wanted to interject this idea that the, the day star, the Orions, um, is uh, – there's two scriptures that come to mind, Malachi 4.2, mm-hmm. where it mentions the son of righteousness, or Psalm 84.11, which talks about uh, our God is a son – and shield, and then Jesus. Mm. Uh, there's two antiphons. There's the key of David, and then there's the um, the bright and morning star, uh, the morning star. And that's this is uh, this is Revelation twenty two sixteen exactly that that Jesus identifies himself as the offspring of David and the bright 
and Morning Star. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, this this isn't just uh, high church. This is right. this has got uh, this is this can be devotional. And, and I know you're reading from Malcolm Geitz, Waiting on the Word. Uh, you shared that mm-hmm. passage with me uh, before our talk, <laughs> and that was remarkable. I was like, "Wow, this is everything we're going to talk about." <laughs> and it is the first day of winter as we're recording this, and this is the devotion. Uh, the mm-hmm. antiphon for uh, December 21st. So it is wonderful how that all lines up. But um, uh, go ahead and, and unpack this one because it's so it is wonderful, and we can talk about the the relationship between the stars and uh, and poetry and song. Sure. Well, yeah, it's yeah. I'm glad you said that because it is so important to note. Uh, you know, neither Malcolm Guide nor the ancient church fathers and mothers are winging it. Uh, it really comes from um, from scripture and from from God Himself. And as I look, um, so it ties together, of course, with Psalm 118, this language in the antiphon of uh, come and enlighten those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death um, is very much uh, as it says in Psalm 118 verses. I'll read both 26 and 27 because that will connect to uh, exactly what is sung during this um, during this service on the 21st of December at Vespers. But it says, uh, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. So I think this, um, this really, I think, helps us to picture when we connect it with what you just said about him saying you know i am this bright and morning star mm. and also he has made his light to shine upon us uh it is sort of it's almost as if he is saying he has made himself to shine upon us it is really an incarnational thing and it's it's a giving of himself um which i think i honestly think that song helps us to understand incarnation in a really special way especially in the thought culture that we are in today because it is invisible and we do not doubt it. (laughs) It is, you know, it is something that we, um, it is a very self-evident thing to sing, to hear song. Um, And it makes me think of, um, I've been reading a little bit of of St. Anselm's um, Why God Became Man. And he describes, you know, the the logic of the incarnation in some places in there, but he says it was not fitting that what God had planned for mankind should be utterly nullified, and the plan in question could not be brought into effect unless the human race were set free by its creator in person. And so the language is a little bit different, but this language of being set free by its own creator is sort of akin to we are illuminated by God himself. And um, I think that's a really a special connection. And, you know, it's sometimes easier to trust the song <laughs> yeah. than the belief in an incarnation, you know. Right. Well, it's, it, uh, it, it very much speaks to, to the, New Testament, the New Testament and Paul's apostolic uh, confession in uh, the second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 4. It's um, for God who said, let light, light shall shine out of mm-hmm. darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Christ, and so in uh, in the Psalms, you know, Psalm nineteen, we have the heavens declaring the glory of God in, in a very general sense. They are a silent proclamation. But then in the New Testament, we have the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then Paul goes on to say, and I, I love this one, verse seven: 
we have this treasure. We have Christ. We have the light of God. We have the light of Jesus. We have this treasure in earthen vessels um, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. And I think this goes back to what you were saying at the beginning, Christy, that that it's like having, you, you know, if you're, <laughs> if you're a violinist, it's like having Felix Mendelssohn indwelling you. <laughs> in a sense that that I'm very ordinary yeah. but the spirit of right. of Felix is with me or or if you're a pianist having the spirit of Mozart indwelling you and giving you that skill but it is ultimately not Christ abstractly not a god of theism not the god of the philosophers but god with us Emmanuel yes. you know yes. not only with us but in us we are in Christ in according to Ephesians before the foundation of the world so we are united with him Mm-hmm. Um, incarnately and spiritually, and and so song uh, just seems to naturally flow out of us, whether we receive it ministerially through others, the gift that others bring to us, or we try to sing it ourselves. It seems like whatever that impulse is, finally, ultimately, it's it's that's the Holy Spirit that bringing to mind those things that Christ has said and done, and uh, I just mm-hmm. think it's a wonderful fulfillment. Of of uh, of of how song was intended to complement yeah. creation. That w- when we sing, we are participating in creation in the way creation was intended to be known. Hmm. It makes me think too um, when Pascal describes Christianity in a way, the Christian God as um, the only religion in which it's it's divine one you know its deity is um perfectly holy and and perfect and descends to the lowest low in order to sort of bring man back with mm. him and it's it's a really um again any any sort of visual image i think really helps to um you know to trust an invisible promise but that's why this um time of year is so special because um god knew that he knew that we needed a baby he knew that we needed um this really f- tangible and actual reminder of something that was um also spiritually and eternally true and that was part of of the of the wisdom of you know his coming um but also it i'm thinking of of the, the way in which he literally sang the hymn with them after the Last Supper, mm. and um, I haven't. Uh, there is a lot more to learn, I think, in this in this area. But I know that scholars for a long time have um, have suggested that part of what they might be singing was the Hallel, which would span from Psalm uh, one fourteen through one eighteen, and it includes this very text that we're talking about. And it really is an amazing thing to think about. Um, you know, the conclusion of this supper and we all, you know, we know what's coming. We know that Christ is about to leave and this is like post-meal pre-Gethsemane in that moment where it Mm. just says they sang a hymn. But that hymn, you know, what if it is this text that right before what is in this um, this antiphon text, when we, uh, the part that, that you referred to earlier, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Uh, what a a crazy and you know transformative thing to think yeah. um, 
the very one that this is about could be singing that in that moment also in obedience to his father you know there's obviously a, a number of layers going on there right but um and then you have the disciples who you know they're hoping to be saved and they don't want Jesus to leave. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's probably how I relate to God most often, just that basic thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but this image of them singing together, but, you know, but what if that is the text that they're singing? Because that is what had been been sung already for many, many years at this time after the Passover. So it's really um, the Last Supper. So it's really a... It's an it's an it's amazing to see how the this text has survived in the church. I think how it, how it has you know come to us and um, and it really emphasizes the way in which God is both our song and our light. The language of light is is so uh, tied you know here, which of course can always bring us back to stars. But. Yeah. Well, that, that that's the other wonder that uh, one of my passages that I often relate to personally in terms of who Jesus is in relation to my own life is uh, Isaiah 53, which is mm. the profound messi- messianic prophecy of of Christ's sufferings, um, that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid our faces from him. But God comes to us and reveals himself to us in the face of Christ. Of course, it brings us back to to the dialogue that Moses has with with God in in Exodus thirty three. Show me your glory, mm-hmm. and God says, "Well, I, I will proclaim to you my goodness, but no man can see my face and live." And so God comes to us later. Moses's answer to prayer: "Show me thy glory." And what do you have in the Mount of Transfiguration when you have Moses? Right. And and Jesus with Moses and Elijah, that Moses sees, he he sees the incarnation and what his answer to prayer in the person of Christ that we behold God's face veiled in flesh. So you know, literally nobody can see the holiness of God and survive it. And so God mediates that in the person of Jesus. And then it's just fantastic to me this idea of. The, the 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 voice that brought the universe into existence is a man of sorrows who mm. <clears throat> became a silent infant and all he could do was girdle and coo and breathe you know and and this is the one that brought the suns and the galaxies and everything into to being by his voice and it it really is the kenosis of philippians 2 where it says that uh have this attitude in yourselves which is also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of god did not regard it equality with God. Mm-hmm. In some, you know, it's not. We're not saying the text isn't saying that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity, right. but he emptied himself of that the privilege that that could afford him. Like he didn't come down as God to do magic tricks. Right. Uh, he didn't come down as God to be self exalting in in this sense of, of of a prideful kind of egotism or using privilege. He set mm-hmm. aside his divine privileges in order to be a slave. I mean, that's Paul's language in Philippians 2, a bondservant, a slave. Um, so being in a found as an appearance as a man, he becomes this servant to man. Um, the king of king and lord of lords uh, did not come to be served, but to serve. And, um, you know, that's it's remarkable. And it begins with his infancy, his birth. Every mm-hmm. aspect of who Jesus was 
in every way was 100% human and yet fully divine. And I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier about song. This virtuoso craftsmanship, I'm the one who created the world, you know, and, and here I am having to learn a trade from my earthly father. Like, here, yeah. son, here's how to put a chair together. <laughs> and he doesn't go, hey, Dad, you know I made the universe. Get away from me. I know what I'm doing. Right. He, he humbly, he, as a human being, goes through the whole process of, of learning, just like we do. And um, so, so the song, and getting into that song, is a part of, it's, it's both ordinary and yet extraordinarily wonderful. It's like, uh, who's the guy that made the violin? Stradivarius, mm-hmm. right? It's like Stradivarius coming to a kindergarten class and helping <laughs> or something like that. You know, you can't, yeah. there's, I can't think of a rich enough metaphor to, to describe yeah. what, what, what we have in Christ. But uh, I love how you put it, that the virtuosity of the professional musician and, and that, that, that stunningly ordinary, but beautiful um, everyday thing of, of the plain chant that you observed. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think what is what I'm really noticing about what you've just said is not in the ordinary aspect of Christ's coming uh, to be with us, there is an intrinsic pain. Mm-hmm. And it is the pain, I think, which makes it um, easier, <laughs> easier to trust that God loves me, mm-hmm. um, easier to hope. For his coming during this season that we're waiting on today, the longest night of the year in this greater season of Advent, you know, leading up to to his birth. Um, but I think there are a few instances where, I mean, a lot of times various Christmas carols or children's stories, there's a lot of things I've been reading lately that mention pain together with both music and light. Mm. And um, a poem, there's um, Christina Rossetti is one of my favorites, and she has an Advent poem called Advent. <laughs> and then, of course, we have uh, the text in the bleak midwinter from her as well and many other things. She has several really, really beautiful Advent-tied and Christmas-tied poems. But mm. um, there is a there is a stanza in her poem called Advent. I won't read much, just a, just a bit, but it oh, sure. says, it's the virgins waiting for the bridegroom, this image of, of waiting and hoping. And um, there's an element of... Um, of community between them that she communicates. But in the second to last um, stanza, she says, We weep because the night is long. We laugh for day shall rise. We sing a slow, contented song. We knock at paradise. Weeping, we hold him fast. Who wept for us? We hold him fast and will not let him go except he bless us first or last. Of course, that reference to to, um, Jacob wrestling. Mm. Uh, Weeping, we hold him fast tonight. We will not let him go till daybreak smite our wearied sight and summer smite the snow. Mm. Then figs shall bud and dove with dove shall coo the live long day. And he shall say, arise, my love, my fair one, come away. Of course, drawing out of Song of Solomon there. Um, mm. But I just I love this, um, you know, in this in this waiting period, the pain, the weeping, and the joy is completely adjacent. They're they're all you know right next to each other, and I think in um, I think in today's day and age, we often hear, uh, especially in church contexts, honestly, people describe the redeeming nature of God's help and assistance and love. And we really want to be assured that um, the pain is 
understandable or mm-hmm. that it's real because it, it just is real. Mm-hmm. And I think that recognizing exactly what you said, that in the incarnation and in the coming of Christ to be with us, it is an acknowledgement that um, he's not just becoming human as in not God, but he's suffering on a level that perfectly encapsulates all of our suffering and so he is to be trusted and therefore to be praised you know and it really kind of connects a lot of things right um there are obviously many many more texts which allude to that but i i love how she captures the waiting yeah that's (laughs) beautiful and the singing in that right i mean we've all been through and continually go through um waiting waiting and waiting i've been at my uh job here at watchman for about two years uh, two years this season, and um, it's been a you know the 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 ministry is donor supported. I've never had a donor supported salary before, and the kind of enduring patience that I go through <laughs> <laughs> month after month, <laughs> it's like okay, Lord, uh, uh. I, tr- I trusted you when I signed up for this, and uh, you know here we are two years into this, going oh man, this is but every 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 instance of having to wait has been rewarded. I can honestly mm-hmm. say it's it's not been the expectations have been adjusted. So you know, you go into it with a certain expectation, but then through the trials that you experience, your expectations are adjusted, but you can continue to see God's faithfulness in this. But one of the things I I what you're saying in this, I loved how you Rossetti there points out that this is all juxtaposed together. We don't have joy and then we have sorrow. We sort of have this and I think we might have touched on it last year when we talked about J.R.R. Tolkien's idea of a eucatastrophe, mm-hmm. <laughs> where mm-hmm. it's it's joyful and it's like, well, you see YouTube videos where kids get puppies and they, <laughs> <laughs> but they don't know whether to laugh or cry. Oh, yes. They're, they're just so, mm-hmm. so overwhelmed with this is so amazing or the, you know, the videos of the military spouse coming home and the, mm-hmm. there's weeping and there's joy mixed together. Right. You know, they're yes, yes. they're crying. I was watching a video. I love these. I, I TikTok is terrible. It's just a time waster, but they're so funny because there's like coworkers that scare each other, and there's all kinds of nonsense out there. But um, there's this. There was this one uh, uh, coworkers that are friends that uh, one of them scares the other one, and one of them's a f- terribly afraid of cicadas. If you're in, li- li- oh yes lived in the South, you know what a cicada is. They're, they're pretty harmless, but they're oh. they're giant and they're kind of scary looking. And so this one lady, she's terrified of cicadas. And so her friend's making fun of her about this and (laughs) and videoing it. And so the friend is laughing and her friend that's terrified of cicadas is laughing, but she's also crying at the same time. Oh, my gosh. So there's this – it's perfectly what you say. I mean, it's kind of humorous, but there's this mix of – this is really hilarious, but I'm also really sad, but I'm mm. also, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Mm. We've, we've all had those experiences of emotions. But I think, you know, it, it, uh, in Malcolm Guide in this book that I, I sent to you, this idea yeah. that lifting the veil, imagination and the kingdom of God. Um, uh, Guide is a uh, Coleridge, I'd say he's a Coleridge expert, mm. Samuel mm-hmm. Taylor Coleridge. Um, but he, he talks about Coleridge a lot. And one of the ideas that, that resonated with me when I read him for graduate school was one of Coleridge, Coleridge's idea of rekindling the imagination and, and recognizing that the imagination, which has to do with song, um, mm. and it has to do with science and knowledge and how we look at the world, right? Because we cannot, when you sit down to sing a song or when you sit down to, to, to create a scientific theory, you're using your imagination and metaphor and simile. Um, but uh, 
you know, the argument was in the Enlightenment time that let's do away with the imagination. Let's get down to what we can, what science can tell us empirically. Let's look at at the the elements of the physical world. Let's do away with with uh, with all the poetic and and imaginative kind of things. And uh, so we get Newton's laws in the Enlightenment. We get we get wonderful things. We get Kepler's laws, but then the universe kind of becomes mechanistic and mm-hmm. anti-human. Mm-hmm. And so it is us against this law, this cold, dark, dead, vacuous, law-oriented um, universe that wants to kill us. I read this a lot in modern <laughs> cosmology. Yeah, yeah. We're insignificant in the cosmos and the universe wants to kill us and you know, space is lethal and this and that and this and that. <laughs> yeah. It's a very anti-human cosmos, the modern cosmology. It's very anti-human. Um, but that, as Geit points out, is is partially due to a loss of or an improper use of our imagining. Because prior to the Enlightenment, it, it, you, you almost have this concept within the church of uh, certainly not an idolatrous like the earth is alive, that we're worshiping the earth, but something like the earth is human-friendly, that, that, it's, that, that our cosmos even is, is sort of a mother, to get the mother nature idea, of a, of a universe designed to care and cater to our needs as human mm-hmm. beings. Not that it's finally centered on us. It's not. It's the creation of Christ. But, but nature is a servant of its Lord, of course, and then, then it serves humanity as well. But, but it's, it's human-friendly, not anti-incarnational. And today's mm. cosmology is, is very anti-incarnational. I mean, if you read right. reductionistic physics— we're just mostly empty space made up of right. atoms that were completely meaningless. But uh, I wanted to read something that uh, that Coleridge says that Geit mentions um, in regards to imagination and, and, and things in, in terms of I, I was thinking about song as well, um, that imagination is something that, that is awakening the mind's attention from the lethargy of custom and directing it towards the loveliness and the wonders of the world before us, an inexhaustible treasure but for which in consequence of the film of familiarity and selfish solicitude, we have eyes yet see not, ears that hear not, and hearts that neither feel nor understand. And so, you know, the the idea is in this modernistic, mechanistic kind of world, our imaginations have died or have been improperly utilized in trying to formulate what the cosmos is like. All right? Is, Is it a machine that wants to kill us? Or is it a servant that glorifies its creator and and is a means through which God provides to us and reminds us of who he is. So you need to, it's not just bare cold logic and reason and science. You need to employ the imagination and understand that, that everything in nature is, is a divine metaphor. I mean, you, you talk about in, in Psalm 118, give thanks to the Lord, or in, in Malachi uh, 4.2, where it says uh, the son of righteousness will come with healing in his wings and you will leap like calves from the stall. You know, I mean, scripture is so rich with metaphor and part of that metaphor are these physical creations of God, trees, calves, stars, birds. Everything is incorporated into the poetry and, and into the song of which we're speaking. That they're, they're, I mean, you don't have music, you don't have poetry without mm-hmm. metaphor and simile. Right, right. Oh yeah, that's that's a really exciting thing to think about because I think we witnessed the ramifications of this loss of or um, 
alteration to what imagination ought to be <laughs> uh, today. But when I think of, well, then in response to what you suggest, what is the what is the antidote? How do we how do we correct? You know this um, this loss or this misunderstanding of of the task or of of part of the task of imagination. And I think I think it actually does have to do with with song and with um, the way in which we imagine our part in this world to be as humans. Because I do think that the the role of the self is is one of the most fundamental. Um, and influencing aspects to to what people believe and what they love and and it really comes back to how they conceive of themselves and of course if you conceive of yourself outside of the context of a a context where you know you have a god who loves you it's um you have to be the best good there's not there are not too many other ways of of being well (laughs) in this life um if you you're not first coming from that from that place and um I think that we've we've spoken about how you know excellently man might sing and then also how ordinary that song might be but I think all these um several of these scripture passages and and certainly a lot of other um places in literature describe how it's not just us but the whole the whole universe that is singing praise to God and if when I read that, it seems surprising now, you know, in the 21st century, the I am singing, the angels singing, all of nature sings, you know, and then I'm reading stories about stars that sing. It is, it's a very equalizing sort of thing. Mm. Um, not that we don't have a special and distinct place in God's plan, of course, but that um, at the end of the day, you know, there's a throne with all of creation singing around it. Mm. And um, I think that something about that is hard in this moment to articulate how, but something about that is a little bit restorative in terms of how to sort of write the imagination that has become dead (laughs) um, in in our culture and I think even in in the church and in in the world. But there is um, a lot of language that I think of Madeline L'Engle I often I've read A Wrinkle in Time the most often of her of her series, but book three, her I don't know if you've read um, all of these, but A Swiftly Tilting Planet, it is a really fantastical description of um, how to save the world. <laughs> of course, why not? <laughs> um, with with music and stars and a unicorn, so it's basically a perfect story. But um, there is a lot of language in in here that she uses about um, the way in which the stars are harmonious and joyful Mm. and it's really incredible how she connects the actual musical harmony and the joy that is a result of that or maybe i don't know i think result might be the wrong word it it also stirs up joy in the listener and of course in this case there is a listener because charles wallace is you know with a unicorn in in the universe listening to the stars and joining with them in in what she refers to as the old music but um she's not coming up with this obviously out of out of (laughs) nowhere this is um the ancient idea of sort of music of the spheres and um I'm not cool enough to know all of the more recent research that has to do with sound waves and temperatures changing inside of stars <laughs> and things that I've read but do not fully understand. But um but either way, I think all I'm I'm really trying to get at is I think it is 
an easier thing to reflect upon um, the way in which God has humbled himself and has come to us and is, um, you know, is saving us, has saved us and, and, and is drawing us to him if we are able to conceive of ourselves as joining in with this entire created yes. order that is suited to praise him. And a lot of the things that we've spoken about help that to make sense insofar as it possibly could, you know, and um, the fact that he is a God who experiences pain and then gives us a way through it because of his pain, you know. And I think this image of him singing with the disciples and the language of of stars that sing in praise to him in the middle of a children's story, you know, all of those things really help to give us an image for how um, it's okay if we're not the most important thing in yeah, the world. Yeah, absolutely. But God is, you know? <laughs> right. I mean, it's uh, a couple of things come to mind as you're saying this, Christy. That number one is the Psalm 8, David's contemplation mm-hmm. of uh, the moon and the stars that God has created yes. with his fingers. Right, so this is another aside to what is mentioned in Genesis, and he created the stars also, kind of an aside. I made them with my mm-hmm. fingers, no big deal. But as David's mm-hmm. contemplating them, he immediately thinks, "Who am I that that you yeah. care for me?" Mm-hmm. And there's there's right. some messianic tinctures in there, and the Son of Man that you care for him, you have crowned him yeah. and made him a little lower than the angels. You know, who is human? Who are we as human beings that? Ultimately, who are we, God, that you would become one of us? That's 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 yeah. the other remarkable thing. And, and lest our listeners be be led astray by this idea that Madame Langle came up with the singing stars. I mean, they're in J.R. Exactly. <laughs> they're they're in J.R. Tolkien. Um, they are in part. And there's a passage in uh, Voyage of the Dawn Tread I want to talk about a little bit. But um, oh, um, yes. biblically, we have this mm-hmm. wonderful psalm in uh, Psalm one forty eight. A psalm of praise, and I can imagine this was uh, this was sung. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights, praise him all angels, all hosts. Praise him sun and moon, praise him all stars of light. Praise him highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He has also established them forever and ever. He has made a decree which will not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth. So we have a praise to the Lord in the heavens, in the heavenly places. That includes everything that he's made. Praise the Lord. And so this is this is an apt simile or metaphor that, that, that in their mm-hmm. own beautiful way, uh, as the Apostle Paul says in, in, in the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, star differs from star in glory everything everything has a body there's a physicality and embodiment to creation physicality of trees and birds and human bodies and 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 mm-hmm. grass and sunshine everything has a different level of glory and paul says you know long before the the science of astronomy paul is saying here that star differs from star in glory and so it's perfectly legitimate poetry to praise and to sing and to think of creation, all of creation, singing and praising the Lord, because that's what it does. It may not have the voice right. that that we mm-hmm. do, um, but there's there's actually some astrophysics out there right now that that, that say that, that there's resonance in stars. They vibrate and, and give off what we would consider to be sound waves. I can only imagine. I've never mm-hmm. actually heard mm-hmm. a recording of this, but I know that there is um, – 
there is uh, science on the on the idea that there's a, a physical mm-hmm. thing. But it's interesting, though, Christy, to juxtapose this ancient way of thinking about the universe in harmony, praising and, and singing, if you will, to God, and the way in which our reductionist materialism is more concerned with, and this gets us into this Lewis passage I want to talk about a little bit, that the materialistic science of today wants to know what's the star made of, right? What, how right. big is it? Give me the numbers. Um, right. I think it was G.K. G. Chesterton who quipped uh, to one of his astronomer friends, you know, you, you tell your daughters the diameter of Jupiter and wonder why she doesn't want to hang out with you, right? <laughs> I think it's something like that. It's one of my favorite Chesterton oh. quotes. I wish I had it right in front of me. But but this yes. idea that, that Jupiter is, is only about you know, diameters and numbers and laws and circumferences and things. These are all fine, fine questions mathematically mm-hmm, and scientifically. Mm-hmm. I don't want to diminish that. But, but that's our focus rather than you know, what's it made of. We want to know more about what the universe is made of rather than what it's for. And it, that's Lewis, something that Lewis mentioned in the Dawn Treader. And you, want to, you mentioned it to me in our emails, um, the Malcolm Guide's antiphon for uh, December 21st. Yeah, well... There's it really it does tie together a lot of things that we um, have been thinking of mostly because other wonderful people have thought of them first. But you know, <laughs> right, um, right. Yeah, I think so. As the dawn treader it, at the end of this long journey, you know, which is very much like a an, an odyssey, you know, harkens back to so much um, pagan literature, but that really importantly shows highlights a journey wherein. Um, one must personally and then there's often a group you know undergo a process of of transformation really and in this in this voyage of the dawn treader story of course we have this um this movement toward gradual movement toward aslan's country and i remember the first time i read this i don't remember how old i was but i i saw the images of this kind of the end of the sea so vividly in my mind and now every time i'm in an airplane and i look out and the clouds look just a certain way i think oh it's aslan's country even though it's in the sky and that's not correct but it's okay (laughs) that's wonderful that's wonderful but um but when there there are several several points wherein they get to interact with um uh with with a star or stars and and singing and um, I first think when they get to the beginning, you know, the the end of the book has the beginning of the end of the world, and then the um, the wonders of the last sea, and then actually the end. And so there's this this progression. But at first, um, Lucy sees this uh, old man coming down, and he has bare feet and long hair, and then all of a sudden he starts to sing, and we have this beautiful image of him singing. And it is also dawn, so this is kind of an interesting uh, morning star picture, I think. Um, mm, it's also, mm. it says he stopped singing and then um, it was a, a high, almost shrill sound. And Lucy said it was a cold kind of song, an early morning kind of song. And then the gray clouds mm. lifted from the eastern sky. The pa- patches of white grew bigger and bigger and it began to shine like silver. They talked to him for a little while and he introduces himself and then... Um, Lucy and Edmund find out that he, in fact, used to be a star. <laughs> and mm. I love it when she says, um, do you mean you were a retired, you're a retired star? <laughs> you know, and, or that's what Edmund <laughs> says. And, and he says, I am a star at rest. <laughs> so I think that, I think we should no longer refer to people as retired. They're just, they're resting right. for a time. But, um, yeah. but yes, it's right before this, this passage you're alluding to where, 
they're they're so baffled by having encountered this one who is singing and they're at the beginning of this part of this world that they've never been before and um and Eustace is there of course having been freed of his dragon scales and he says um in our world a star is a huge ball of flaming gas and that's sort of like that's all there is to it and um Mm. he says even in your world my son that is not what a star is but only what it has made of and he goes on to describe another one that they have met who also was a star and then lucy's like wait he's also a retired star and they're so they're so (laughs) hung up on on what a star is and what i when you're talking about this um the way in which we are so interested in knowing how the world is made and this happens with music too i think a lot of the new music scene is very very similar to to recent science um in the ways in which we display our human curiosity but I think that curiosity is still a good thing. And there's something in that that is um, helpful when we think of how we can open ourselves up to a place where we could know God. But it is true that we do become satisfied with what the star is made Mm -hmm. of, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, and I think think the point, Christy, I think, and I'm assuming we'd probably likely agree about this, but but it's the – I think what we're talking about is the ultimate – kind of knowledge mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. like you would talk to a skeptic or an atheist who had said as Eustace did the star is just plasma and gas and that's right. it that's the ultimate explanation we're not going to talk about what it might mean mm-hmm. because people think well that opens the door to astrology and some people even right. have accused Lewis of introducing mm-hmm. children to astrology but but mm-hmm. the imagination I think it's a good point to make here a a Christ-centered imagination is one tethered to a foundational truth paradigm. In other words, mm. if, if you are rooted and grounded in Christ, your imagination will grow and flourish. Right. Um, and it's not imagination or it's not the idea that, uh, oh, Lewis is introducing astrology to kids. Right. No, if your imagination is rooted and grounded in Scripture, rooted and grounded in Christ— you already know that this is Lewis is making allusions to what we already have in Scripture. I mean, we've right. we've talked about Job thirty-eight. We've talked about Psalm one forty-eight. We have singing stars in the Bible. We have the personification of stars in Scripture as metaphor and simile. I think it's uh, Genesis fifteen five where God takes Abraham outside and says, "Count the stars if you are able. Your mm-hmm. descendants will be like that." Right, and then, and of course, the the passage we mentioned in uh, Revelation twenty two sixteen, where Jesus says, "I'm the offspring of David, the bright and morning star, the day spring." And so, all Lewis is doing, if your imagination is 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 grounded and rooted in Christ, you you understand what's going on here. That mm-hmm. the, the Eustace and uh, and 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 Lucy and the kids they're baffled <laughs> that a star could be anything more than what they understood it to be. Right. This is this is almost like a, I think in in some sense this is the beginning of Lu, of, of Eustace's transformation. Part of it anyway in mm-hmm. in coming to grips with the idea that what do you mean materialism isn't true? Mm-hmm. You know my knowledge of it just being gas is that you mean there's more? You know that that kind of sense where where you begin to see creation in every way as an expression in some way shape or form. Of, of who God is and his invisible attributes from from trees to birds to stars. I mean, Romans 1, everything mm-hmm. that God has made reveals some distinct invisible attribute 
uh, of who he is. And I, so that's mm. why I think I love this passage that you're talking about. So um, pardon the interruption. Go on. No, it's, it's perfect. It's absolutely perfect. It, um, it makes me think of, of just a little further on in the story, actually, perfectly, because at the, at the very end, right before we you know, find out that Eustace does, in fact, continue to become nicer and nicer, <laughs> um, he, he has been changed. Uh, we see Lucy and Edmund encounter a lamb, and they, you know, they're asking the way to to Aslan's country, and it turns out to be Aslan, of course. And um, he's speaking to them, and this ties together with what you're describing about the way in which our we might both be tethered to God, and also our imagination about who He is and how we can see Him reflected in this space around us grows, because. They're asking him, essentially, how do we get into Aslan's country if we can't come back the same way? And he reassures them, saying, I have provided a way for you, no matter where you are. And then they say, well, can we come back to Narnia? And he says, you're too old to come back to Narnia. And Lucy despairs. And um, and she says, but how shall, we, how shall we meet you? How shall we know you? And... He says, um, I'll quote this because Aslan, you know, cooler than me. He says, um, uh, she says, it isn't Narnia, you know, sob Lucy. It's you. We shan't meet you there. And how can we live never meeting you? And he says, you shall meet me, dear one. Edmund says, are you there too, sir? Aslan says, I am. But there I have another name. You must learn to know me by that name. This is the very reason why you were brought to Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you may know me better there. Mm. And it, I think, is a really beautiful um, connection between the way in which he's allowed them to know him some and the promise for knowing him more. Uh, but the language is still one of him going to be with them, him meeting them where yeah. they are, which is very much this, you know, a return to the Emmanuel. Well, and um, I think um, that ending there, I, I know some of uh, people who really love Lewis, I understand that this is the closest in all the Narnia series that Lewis comes to saying Aslan is like Jesus. I mean, right. everybody right. everybody kind of knows that, but this is the closest he comes to sort of removing that veil mm-hmm. and saying, because there's that I am statement. Right. Are, are you there too, sir, said Edmund? I am. I am. <laughs> and if, if you're thinking imaginatively, you're like, oh my goodness, I get this, right? That, that you see Lewis's purpose here kind of unveiled that, that you were brought here so that you could know me better elsewhere. And um, anyway, I think that, um, and I love what he says, child, said Aslan, do you really need to know that? (laughs) Come. I am opening a door in the sky. As you say, there's a way. Um, And you you see Lewis's reference to like a curtain being Mm. torn Mm. and a terrible white light from beyond the sky and the feel of Aslan's mane and a lion's kiss on their foreheads and then the back bedroom in Aunt Alberta's home in Cambridge. And so they're, they're transported back. But, but this idea that the familiarity of, of this world is suddenly instantly transcended and it's shocking and it's terrible and it's good and it's horrible. And, and this, is, this is what the incarnation is preparing us for, mm-hmm. um, is that sudden transformation that will come there will be signs in the heavens and the sky will be rent just like the tail the 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 um, tabernacle the, the right. curtain in the tabernacle was torn but but this idea that and I love how Lewis does it with Eustace it's it's a very gradual process right mm-hmm. there's only a 
with the Apostle Paul, you have this violent conversion on Damascus Road, but <laughs> but with a, with with the Eustace, there's this gradual transformation where he's undragoned, but he's still learning, and he he goes on through this very gentle process mm-hmm. uh, where he finally comes to know, or we think he finally comes to know uh, what it's all about. Because when we first meet Eustace, he's a petulant terrible materialist and you know no imagination whatever <laughs> but then by the end you know aslan has softened him mm-hmm. to some degree and, and it's almost imperceptible to to eustace as he undergoes this transformation mm-hmm. um but that that i think is is how god is to all of us in some mm-hmm. sense very merciful in gradual stages uh that we barely can perceive as they're happening but then when we look back we're like wow i i see that more clearly now so mm-hmm. and song is certainly absolutely a part of that yeah i think with eustace too when we were talking about pain earlier in the the i don't have it open to that section right now but where um where aslan is helping him remove the dragon scales uh eustace was trying Mm. and he kind of saw that he could get a little bit better on his own but he could not free himself and um but the the language that lewis uses to describe he finally receives help and aslan tears it off and it hurt a little bit but then the skin Mm. underneath was gentle and soft and fresh and new and then my favorite part is when he throws them into the water like to rinse them off and it's this hilarious image of baptism (laughs) you know this like little dragon baby (laughs) tossed in baptized made new but the um the transformation that we just are talking about with eustace toward the end is after all that has happened and i think that is a really yeah. beautiful reminder of the the length of the christian journey does extend for yes. our whole life and you know we have right. this moment where right. god has made us clean and um and the musical analogy certain could extend you know very far here but where where we begin to learn to sing but the process is a very continual one and it's why it's so important for us to have this human and physical and corporate and personal experience of of advent i think each year so that we remember again that this is the the way that this narrative is actually transformative and the um we need song because we need the tangible experience of remembering. It's one thing to remember intellectually, but I think having a way to join with others, having a way to use our physical body is really, really um, instrument no pun intended, instrumental, <laughs> and uh, is, is, is transformative. You know, it's this thing which literally extends from us and then reaches God. Yeah. And we need that reminder, I think. Absolutely. You know, he doesn't need our praise in a way that would indicate any kind of lack, although it is part of the perfect way of how it, it works together. But but we do need to remember mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. um that it is this this thing that connects us to him and and to each other. There's a wonderful um very moving I was very surprised by it myself about how moved I was. Uh not too long ago uh, I think it was 60 Minutes. Uh, it may have been something else. Um, but they did an expose on Tony Bennett, who's in his 90s. Um, hmm. And he got together and collaborated with a new album uh, with Lady Gaga. And uh, you think, this is just bizarre beyond belief. Lady Gaga, <laughs> you know, culturally iconic, known for her outlandish uh, performance-oriented kind of thing. She does have a very beautiful voice in, in when she uses it, you know, and she's a talented mm-hmm, musician. Mm-hmm. But... Tony's in his 90s, and, and they've just kind of developed a, a, a paternal, affectionate relationship with one another in terms of, you know, he's kind of adapted her as, as his granddaughter or something. And, but anyway, 
the story, Tony's undergoing some dramatic something, Alzheimer's, something related to that to that effect. And obviously in his 90s, he's some kind of debilitating um, um, mental struggle, um, not in terms of just mm. old age and things like that. But but um, I forgot what it was. I want to do justice to that. I don't want to call him he's senile or anything. But uh, um, anyway, so Tony Bennett's experiencing some some form of Alzheimer's, I think the story said. I'm not sure exactly. But uh, the wonderful part of this whole story is how excited and rejuvenated when Tony starts singing, he can go through an hour long, a 90 minute set of his songs and never miss a beat. Oh, wow. And completely just a completely mm. enters into a completely different persona. But it's that music that that seems to keep mm-hmm. the spirit of who Tony Bennett is alive that that that's the person that everybody knows when he's singing and smiling and on stage and and uh, he just lights up when when uh, he's singing with Lady Gaga it's a it's a wonderful I think you can see it on YouTube now it's a wonderful it's very touching mm. but I think it, it talks about you know Tony Bennett has been uh, music has been his life and here he is in his 90s and the one thing that that is keeping his the persona of who he is alive is is music is that that sense of music, you know, and how how intrinsically important that is to to the soul of of who we are, um, and and as you say, it's an excellent mnemonic device. Whether we receive it or whether we participate in it, it seems to be as essential for us as as food. I mean, like Jesus says, a man cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God. And part of that word proceeding out of the mouth isn't just speaking; it's yeah. singing. Yeah, absolutely. I think so. And that that really uh, kind of circles back to what we mentioned at the beginning about the way in which song um, is fundamentally human and ordinary in, in part of its makeup and nature. And I think if we think of it as only specialized, we also tend to think of it as extra. Mm, and yeah. Instead, it's that necessary aspect that um, that we are reminded of, you know, during a season like this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not, music is not a uh, uh, a luxury; it is an essential aspect yes. of, of who we are as mm-hmm. human beings. Well, Christy, it's been right. wonderful spending Advent time with you again, and uh, I don't see why this couldn't become a tradition as long as we stay in touch. Christmas with Christy George, um, <laughs> fantastic! <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, and uh, we will stay in touch. And uh, any parting thoughts for uh, for us uh, this Advent season? Well, I think everybody should get everything ever written by Malcolm Guide. Amen. If you haven't already. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know, but but truly, I'm I'm grateful, and I think that the most important thing about everything that we've mentioned is um, that the the process of of coming to and remembering. Um, and sort of being curious about who Christ is during this time. Um, it's one that requires pause and one that requires um, the willingness to open your mouth to begin to sing or to pray. And that, that, that it's something that uh, you can't read about. You know, you can't read about it. You can't talk about it. Only um, the actual act of, of worship and of devotion is, is the part that is transformative um, because it is in that that I think we actually believe the things that we've mentioned about how God has, has come to be with us. So I hope that in these um, days leading up to Christmas, uh, 
that I I keep that in mind and that my you know spirit is in a place of devotion and curiosity at the same time um, but I, I would also just encourage that for for each of us Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, What is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Good Heavens is a podcast that takes a deep look into the cosmos, revealing God's wondrous power and design. If you would like to become a patron supporter of Good Heavens, visit patreon.com slash goodheavens today 